All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. We've got a fascinating guest and a fascinating topic for you guys. I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. David Sorota joins us. David is, of course, a well-known shill for Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> but other than that, he was a speechwriter and senior advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. How you square those two things, I'm not really sure. He's also the founder and editor of the Daily Poster. So. David, as you well know, there's an ongoing discussion about forcing a vote on Medicare for all through blocking the speakership of Nancy Pelosi. So my first question to you is, how much have you been paid by Pelosi, Schumer, Soros, and Hugo Chavez? I mean, wait, Hugo wouldn't fit into that conspiracy, um, to to help block Medicare for all. Uh- <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that question. I'll just be straight with you. I have not been paid any money to do that. Although I guess apparently there's wild speculation that anybody who raises any questions about any particular Medicare for all tactic, it must mean they're working for Nancy Pelosi's Wall Street funded super PAC. But in all seriousness, look, there's been a conversation about what are the best tactics to force a conversation and force votes and force progress. Uh, towards uh, the government guaranteeing health care for all. Uh, and I think, frankly, getting a floor vote uh, on the floor of the House uh, would be helpful. I think that would be a good thing. I've said that from the beginning. I don't think it's the only thing. Uh, and I think it's debatable whether it's even the most important thing. There's a number of things that need to be done that haven't been done uh, that Democrats in the Congress can use their leverage to actually uh, do. And I think that we, as a progressive movement, should be able to have a conversation about different strategies and tactics uh, without saying that if you disagree with me on a a particular strategy or you have an amendment to a particular strategy, we should be able to have that conversation without me then accusing you of being a shill for the health insurance companies or a shill for the drug companies or a stealth lobbyist for Nancy Pelosi's super PAC. Yeah, well, you see, it's actually more absurd than that because um, look, there, there are some bad actors in Washington DC. So uh, the campaign donations, are in essence legalized bribes. So we're kind of stuck in the middle here, David. The mainstream media will not acknowledge obvious things about how wrong this system is. And on the other hand, we now have some folks who are kind of on the left, maybe on the left, I can't quite tell, saying that anyone who disagrees with their particular tactics are also working for Raytheon and Pfizer, etc. Right? And so, um, but 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 in this case, it's more absurd because I don't know anyone who has been fighting for Medicare for all more than you have, and and not only that, but you've exposed Nancy Pelosi's staff and and their connections. You, Ryan Grimm, David Day, and these are among the I would say the very top journalists in the country who have exposed all that's wrong with Democratic leadership. So this. It's debate has spiraled in an unproductive and crazy direction. But now I want the real reason for this conversation is is to get into the details and into strategy and see how we really can do things. And you and I might disagree on some of the particulars, but let's have that conversation. So first of all, let me start bringing it down one by one. Let's talk about the vote in terms of the speakership. So let's just go through the logic of it if we can. Uh, if people still care about that. So if uh, Nancy Pelosi, so the idea here for uh, 
hashtag force the vote is. If we can get enough progressives in Congress, and there are enough progressives in Congress, barely, but I think there is, to vote against Nancy Pelosi, then we could force her to give us a concession. The concession would be a Medicare for all vote. So now, let's start with, is that possible that you could block Pelosi thing? And let me acknowledge my mistake as I in the middle of the question. I said that they'd have to vote for McCarthy in order to really have leverage. But that's not true, right, David? It's they'd, they could actually abstain. And what would happen if they abstain? Well, the, the speaker is elected by the majority, a majority vote of the House. And essentially, they keep voting until there is a majority candidate. I think once on the first ballot, if they abstained, it would go to a second ballot and a third ballot, and on and on until there was a candidate who could get a majority. Now, I think the fear of Kevin McCarthy is a fear of the right wing of the Democratic Party. And look, I lived in Montana as one example. When the Democrats won the state legislature there, they won the state the, the state house. And there was a situation in which the state house ended up electing a Republican speaker, a Republican speaker of a Democratic house. Because the right wing of the Democratic Party forged a coalition with a Republican speaker. So that's one probably remote possibility. But certainly, you know, you could imagine a group of blue dogs potentially threatening to go to a a conservative or even a a quote quote unquote moderate Republican if you believe that 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 even exists. That's one remote possibility. You could have a different possibility where if progressives abstain, there's another candidate, another Democratic candidate who could put their name in to run and and agree to making that concession to the progressives to get their votes and try to forge a different coalition. So I think it's it's a it's in some ways it's a crapshoot. And and look, I think that does give those those progressive legislators some leverage to say our votes do not come for free. You have to make some policy concessions to us. Now, I want to say I think they would have been in an even better position to do this in the caucus vote. What what happens typically in most cases is the dem the majority caucus in the House, the party caucus votes. It's not an official vote. It's not an official vote in the House, but they vote for their candidate. And then the person who wins that race, then the party, everybody agrees to vote for that candidate on the floor of the House. So I would say if you could rewind history, you'd want this first to play out in the Democratic caucus where there was a candidate running against Nancy Pelosi. But I still think it means that they have some leverage. And here's the thing, when it comes to a vote on the floor of the House, it's not really very much to ask Nancy Pelosi. You're not really asking her for something that puts her in too tough a position. I would argue it's the minimum that should be expected. That's why I had said I'd like to see if they're gonna use this leverage, for them to use the leverage to ask for things that Nancy Pelosi really, really doesn't wanna do. Nancy Pelosi does not, for instance, wanna remove Richard Neal as the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. She does not want to necessarily schedule a vote on Ro Khanna's bill, which would empower the HHS secretary to allow states to have Medicare for all programs. So my only point in this whole conversation was to say they should actually ask Nancy Pelosi for more things, you ask for the whole loaf, in an expectation that you may only get half or a quarter of a loaf, you shouldn't ask necessarily for for the only crumb you would take at the very beginning, because if you start from that position of negotiation, you're starting from a position of weakness. Yeah, so 
let me let me break it down first. Further, first of all, as you were talking, I realized who could be the new speaker of the House if things go sideways. Jeff Van Drew used to be a Democrat until recently. He's a Republican now. Loves Trump. The Democratic leadership loved him a minute before he defected. Right, Republicans now love him. All right, I'm I'm mainly kidding. Although with corporate Democrats, you never know. Right, I think there's a very very low chance that that a Republican would become speaker if you executed this. I basically agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, I at this point I'm no longer worried about that. Okay, so um, but to me, I'm going to get to what concessions should we ask for and what vote should we force. But let's talk about this particular vote and finish that up. To me, what's frustrating is, okay, we force a vote, they go back into the caucus, but there's not a single progressive who would run against Pelosi. So where's the end game? Like, and David, not a lot of people might know this, and I don't blame them. I'm doing it sometimes publicly, sometimes I'm doing it behind the scenes, but I've asked progressives to run against Pelosi. I've done it, like I said, I've done it on the show, I've done it on social media, but I've also done it behind the scenes. And no one will. And so, should we pressure them to? Yes, okay. But are they going to do it this time around? I think there's a zero percent chance. So, well, if- well, I think there's value if Nancy Pelosi even has to go back to the caucus to make a concession. If there's any, I guess what I'd say is if there's any disturbance in the normal process, and the disturbance is understood to be a disturbance about. Medicare for all, single payer healthcare. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that might be a good thing. And I certainly think, look, the next in line, if you look at the at the current hierarchy, the next in line is probably Hakeem Jeffries. It's probably not going to be Steny Hoyer. Hakeem Jeffries is really not very different from Nancy Pelosi. But I think what we're talking about here is to is that an exercise of at least some power or an attempt to exercise some power can be a good thing. Again, though, I don't want to oversell it. And that's what I've been disturbed about in this entire conversation. Not the conversation we're having, but the larger conversation, which is to say that this is a tactic. It's a useful tactic, but overselling it as the only tactic, overselling it as the silver bullet, overselling it as the key, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And what really doesn't make a lot of sense to me is to oversell it in such a zealous way that if anybody raises a question, an innocent question, an earnest question, that they are they are labeled as some sort of traitor, that is truly counterproductive. That is truly not good for the movement to actually realize Medicare for all. Look, the great irony here is, most progressives agree overwhelmingly with some version of this direction. And that is what's so frustrating to so many of us. As we're trying to agree and figure out what's the best strategy for what concessions do you ask and what vote do you pursue it in? There's like a howitzer ripping through the progressive movement going, sell out shills, you're a crook, fraud, etc. Like, hold on. Hold on, let's all figure out how to strategize together. No, don't strategize, just be ah, right? Okay, all right, all right, but we, in, that's why I say in this case, in this vote, we go ah, okay. And then no progressive runs for the spot. Then we lose credibility. So we, we asked for a thing that we could not get. Our own progressives wouldn't support us. 
And, and so by the way, David, so, so that's why they have no end game. And I think they pretty much admit they have no end game. They just wanna rage into the abyss and I don't blame them for that. There's actually tons and tons of good reasons for righteous anger. And, and you have it and I have it and we've been ostracized by the mainstream media and the establishment Democrats because of our righteous anger. And it could actually be very productive, which I'm gonna get to next. But saying do a thing that we know you can't do, or don't I are not going to do in this case is so counterproductive. And so hence I want to go and, and finish up this particular vote with one last thing. David, if we were gonna do this, and, and I wouldn't even be against any of this if we had done it right from the beginning. We would go and find a progressive who's actually willing to run against Pelosi so we don't get embarrassed in the caucus when they say, okay, now here's a vote. Who's gonna, uh, you know, you guys block the vote. For Pelosi, so who's your candidate? And crickets, there's no candidate. So the I, my sense is, you go ahead of time, you figure out someone who's actually going to run against Pelosi. By the way, this might be the case in 2022. Then you vote in the caucus before you go and risk anything with the Republicans or Blue Dog Democrats or anything like that. That that's a smart, strategic, planned out way of doing it. And then you come with a list of demands along the lines of what you just said and what you have on the Daily Poster. Does that make more sense? Well, I, I certainly think that does make, make more sense over the long haul. And I think that, look, Pelosi has faced challenges in the past. Unfortunately, they have frankly been challenges on her right. She has gotten challenges from conservative Democrats. I think that Nancy Pelosi doesn't represent the progressive movement. I don't think that's controversial to say. I think it's pretty clear that she doesn't represent the progressive wing of the Democratic Party or the Democratic caucus in the House. And you would really like to see a progressive candidate to run for leadership. I think, you know, I've heard the fears of that. There's a fear that, well, if Pelosi had run for speaker and then a progressive had run for speaker, that then a blue dog Democrat would run for speaker and you'd end up with actually a, 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 an outwardly conservative Democrat winning that caucus race. I mean, those are the kinds of, of battles that actually need to happen and they haven't happened. It's long overdue for them to happen. Yeah, so we're totally agreed on that. I actually don't mind losing to a blue dog in that way. I mind losing to a blue dog when you didn't have a plan going in, you force a vote that you have no candidate for. And then some blue dog comes in and goes, okay, I'll run. And then they get a majority and then they're worse than Pelosi. Well, that's the kind of non-planning I just can't stand. It, it, it drives me nuts when people don't think through their plans. So on the other hand, if you had planned out ahead of time and you've got somebody who's raised their hand, they're gonna run against Pelosi and you risk a blue dog winning because you're splitting within the caucus. David, I don't know about you, I'm perfectly happy to do that. Yeah. Yes. And the reason I'm happy to do that is because the most important step is to get one of those progressives to step forward and say, no, democratic leadership is not right. And publicly, honestly, they haven't. And that's why things are blowing up behind the scenes and things are blowing up in the movement, not just because of the howitzer and, and, and people not understanding the political process, but because of their in, the inaction of the progressives in Congress. I mean, we, they. They, they're good on policy, they're good on the hearings, There's, they've done a ton of things. It's totally unfair to say they haven't. But I don't think they've ever challenged Democratic leadership publicly. Um, am I seeing that wrong or do you agree with that too? No, I mean, look, Cenk, it's it's very obvious that, that there is a lack of uh, of intestinal fortitude 
among progressive elected officials in Congress and frankly progressive elected officials across the country in taking on their own party's leadership. In actually trying to change the direction of the party to actually challenge whatever you whatever word you want to call it. The democratic machine, the democratic establishment, the democratic elite. I mean, you have seen this over and over and over again. I think you saw it. You've seen a lot of deference even during the primary campaign to Joe Biden among every candidate who was running for president in that primary. You've seen what I've called a tyranny of decorum from rank and file members of Congress towards their leadership, not really willing to take the full step into a confrontational posture. And I think what you're suggesting is that that has left a vacuum. It has left people feeling, the progressive movement feeling unsatisfied and in some cases betrayed. And I think those feelings are absolutely legitimate. I think those feelings are a product of, of a lack of leadership. And I think if, if a good thing comes out of all of this, short of Medicare for all passing, if a good thing that comes out of this, I think it will be to express that sense of anger at a party, at a rank and file progressives for not spending political capital on taking on their own leadership. Yeah, and and so look, campaign contributions are nefarious. The people who take them think, if we're being generous, that they have no choice. If we're being ungenerous, they know the game that's being played and they're perfectly comfortable with it. But our guys, the progressives, don't take the corporate cash. They don't take corporate PAC money. So questioning their motives is is not only mean spirited, but and I wouldn't mind that if you were going towards a cause and you were right. But it's just not true. So it, it, what what actually happens is, and I've seen it with my own eyes. They get told a story about how they would be deeply offending their colleagues and how their colleagues are their new friends. And and it's actually a really smart strategy because it progressives want to be nice. So they turn around, they say, no, you don't want to be mean to your beloved colleagues, do you? And I've been trying to shake them out of that for over two years now. Your colleagues are not important. There are other people in power. Your voters are important. Your base is important. So, and unfortunately, they haven't listened to that. And now that's why part of the reason why we have this explosion. But I want to talk about forcing a vote because now people say, oh, Jane, you don't, you just want us to wait. That's insane. <laughs> no, I wanted to force a vote on this during the caucus. That was a month ago. So you're late to the party. But David, okay, fine, going forward, I'd be in favor of forcing a vote on almost any so called must pass bill because the confrontation creates a debate and the debate is important. I want to get back to that in a second. But I want to ask you specifically, going forward, pass the speakership vote. What are the different places where progressives can force a vote where it would make a difference? Well, I think, as I said, there was there's a bill that Ro Khanna has to empower Joe Biden's HHS secretary to be in a better position to give states the waivers that they need to create Medicare for all systems. Sounds like an esoteric thing, but is actually, I would argue, is an incredibly important, not just policy matter, but a political matter in this way. Having that bill pass on the books 
would empower Democratic state legislators throughout the country to take the Medicare for All campaign into their own communities in a very real way. Every state legislator in America who's a Democrat who wants to support Medicare for All could go into their communities and say, we're trying to pass this in our state. We're not waiting for Congress. This is not some resolution just to tell our Congress people to do something right. We're gonna do it right here. California actually had a single payer bill in its own legislature. And one of the things that held it up was the HHS, was the concern that the HHS would not give them the necessary waivers to actually do this. So a vote on that actual bill, on that legislation, to act, would actually have a chance, I would argue, to actually pass the Congress and could actually help the movement. The other thing that could be done is to put, have Democratic leaders put real direct confrontational pressure on Joe Biden to, to use executive authority to expand Medicare right now. One of the things that I'm really concerned about in all this conversation is that there's this idea that since Joe Biden won the election, since he's president, there's no, nobody has any leverage over him. So we should, just shouldn't pressure him at all because the election's over and he's gonna do whatever he wants. Meanwhile, he has arguably the power on under current law to expand Medicare to cover more people in the pandemic. And so simply giving him a pass, on that when the guy could actually just with the stroke of a pen actually expand Medicare, giving him a pass is a waste. We need those members of Congress, the Democrats, to step up in a public way demanding that the president who they helped elect actually deliver on something like that. I think that so, would be huge. So look, we're running out of time here, but David, that goes to the very, very heart of it. I think the number one, there's two giant problems here. Number one, the media is the problem because they say, oh no, Pelosi and AOC are the same thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Dr. Pelosi definitely wants Medicare for all, even though she has said she does not want Medicare for all. And they're like, I don't see it. Nope, nope. I'm going to call all of you radicals. The whole country wants Medicare for all. Every poll shows it. Nope, nope. I'm going to say the country doesn't want Medicare for all. I think mainstream media has an alternate reality that is arguably in some ways as thick as Trump's alternate reality. And so, I mean, to the point you made another post, David, we just had $1,200 checks that we could have fought for. And 88% of the country is in favor of it, including 83% of Republicans. And Democrats caved for no caved. reason. Totally and said, caved. okay, 600. And by the way, they wouldn't have gotten the 600 if it wasn't for your former boss, Bernie Sanders, who That's fought right. like hell. That's right. That brings me to my main point. Yes, mainstream media, honestly, they're borderline liars. Like to say that $1,200 checks are not popular is insane. To say that Democrats couldn't have fought for it is insane. To not accurately call out that they caved on it is insane. It's an alternate reality. But the way you force a conversation and at least get us a $600 check is to do what Bernie did, fight. Because once you fight, unexpected things happen. Then Josh Hawley joins you. And then all of a sudden you got a Republican, so the press takes you seriously, etc. But it appears to me out of all of these things, even with the internal fighting that we're all so mad over, etc. That is not the number one problem. The number one problem at the end of the day is our progressives have at some point say, no, I'm not gonna just fight Republicans. I'm gonna get on the floor of the house and I'm gonna give a speech on why my leadership, Democratic leadership is wrong. They're wrong about Medicare for all and they're wrong about these other things. Because that'll force a conversation that actually could change things. What's your take on it? I 100% agree that, that progressives in the House 
progressives in the Senate need to be willing to call out their own leadership. There is a way to call out your leadership in a respectful way, in a productive way, and in a confrontational way that does not undermine your party, that does not help the Republicans, that actually shows that the party itself is listening. We have not seen enough of it. We need to see a whole heck of a lot more of it. And look, I'm hopeful that we're gonna see a lot more of it. I mean, I think Nancy Pelosi has taken the side so many times of you know being bad, frankly, on policy. And the idea that she's some master negotiator, I think is belied, frankly, by the entire stimulus debacle that's unfolded. So I, so if they can't, if the progressives in the House cannot stand up and at least air some of these concerns in a cogent, coherent way, you know, I think it would be a huge missed opportunity. But 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 I want to end on a on a on an optimistic note by saying I do think that they are ready to stand up. I do think that we can have tactical and strategic debates about which vote is the right vote and which strategy is the right strategy. But I do get a sense. I've worked in this for a long time. I do get a sense that the that progressive members of Congress are more willing than ever to actually start making this case. Well. Uh, behind the scenes and in front of the scenes, I'm gonna keep pushing for it. And I agree with you, especially with the new folks coming in. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of strength and power there. And if after all that, they still don't do it and they another two years and none of them ask for a vote on Medicare for all or any of the other things we've been talking about, it would be, it, it would be devastating and it will not stand. So there's no way it stands. No, we're gonna force them into action one way or another. Uh, and yes, this has not been the the, best shining example of us being strategic in that direction. But we can build from this and build from all of your work, my work, all of these other great progressives works, Justice Democrats work, etc. for all these years. And it's time, it's past time, let's go. Stand up to Nancy Pelosi, stand up to Chuck Schumer. They are not our colleagues, they're not our friends. They don't agree with us on policy. And if you're trying to protect their feelings, you're hurting the rest of us, and that is a fact. And it's an uncomfortable fact, but it's a fact. I completely um, agree. Right. Yeah, we, we. It's weird uh, that we agree on that, given what is being said about us <laughs> uh, in the public sphere. Anyway, all right, uh, David Sorota, everybody check out the Daily Poster. You guys are doing amazing work. Article after article. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, and thank you for your work and for your advocacy. Thank you.